0: Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. me in the corner that's me in the spot light listening to the stick to wrestling podcast i want to thank rem for writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling where if you give us 60 minutes perhaps indeed We'll give you a Wicked Good and Raw Bone podcast. You are invited to join our Facebook page. Bunch of cool guys talking about wrestling, sharing results, pictures, the whole nine yards. You are invited. Just ask to join and you're in. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, uh, just put in the name John McAdam. And uh, follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling avatar, uh, Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And one thing I want to mention to everybody back up your files frequently don't be like me I had all of my stick wrestling notes on a file that became corrupted that I hadn't saved in like or backed up in like seven or eight months what a tragedy and I, I keep relearning this lesson but from now on I'm backing up everything at least once a month and with that said one cool thing about stick to wrestling. One of the many cool things is I get to hang out with people that I have known online for years, if not decades. And I finally get to have a conversation with them here on the show. We're doing that again today. Uh, I want to bring on Frank Culbertson who really knows his Portland wrestling. And that's what this show is going to be about. Frank, thank you for coming on.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's always good to, uh, talk wrestling at any length of time and whenever i can it's it's a great opportunity so i appreciate being here
0: now tell us a little bit about your background in wrestling
1: Uh, so i'm i can tell people i'm 64 years old and i have lived in the portland metro area my entire life um so i've followed a lot of portland wrestling since probably my first uh, match i ever went to was at the old portland armory downtown. When was that? 1965. And it was oh a, wow, Don Leo Jonathan versus Stan Stasiak. The only thing I really remember about it is Stasiak walked past me and said, hi, kid. And so he instantly became my favorite. Um, and then my, I went to um, the Lonnie Maine-Tony Bourne first feud at Memorial Coliseum in 68 with my dad and uh, grandpa. Both my grandpas loved wrestling, and that was my uh, relationship with them. And so they were the ones that oftentimes uh, took me to wrestling. In 1988, um, I started doing television announcing for Pacific Coast Championship Wrestling, which was the group that started up after Billy Jack Haynes' um, Oregon Wrestling Federation folded. And um, that was in Oregon City with Rip Oliver as the booker. It was on, at the time, Speak of how time flies, the fledgling uh, Fox affiliate here in town. Uh, had picked up the program, and we were on there for a short time before it, of course, folded. I've done uh, ring announcing um, for a number of different groups in the Portland area. In 2001, I was the business manager for the WB32, uh, the WB affiliate here in Portland. We had a large arena or a studio that wasn't being used the general manager asked me what we could do to make revenue. And I said, let's bring back Portland wrestling. He was from, not from here, so he had no idea. Uh, so I put together a proposal and the sales manager who knew Portland wrestling well, thought it was great. Uh, we sold it to sponsors who jumped on. We brought sponsors in from other stations. So it was very successful until there was some commission issues that came up. Um, Which eventually commission
0: issues in in Oregon? You're kidding.
1: No, I I know. (laughs) When when we received the uh, notice from the state's attorney general threatening me and the general manager of the station with jail if we produced another program without a license, um, that the program stopped. Um, Then Comcast Sportsnet uh, came and approached me and said we would like to do wrestling. They were uh, just starting the Sportsnet. They had just signed the Oregon Ducks and they asked if I would do Portland wrestling. So I left my position at WB and went out on my own for a couple of years doing um, Portland wrestling, uh, using Piper and uh, Lynn Denton, the what I'm sure we'll talk about them. Um, so I've been around wrestling um, since, like I said, my first time was 1965. So I've seen most of it on television for years. And then of course, Followed it on line now as we tend to do.
0: That is excellent, and I'm I'm looking forward to this show. We have not done a complete episode just on Portland wrestling, and I'm looking forward to it. Now we took some questions from the people who uh, are on our Facebook group, uh, but the first question is going to come from me. And I looked this up in the book. There was a guy in Portland named mike popovich he was a former oregon ducks football player yes and i didn't know much about him but i remember after he left the business i mean they talked about him negatively for years after he got out now we'll we'll talk more about this book but uh frank was nice enough to send me a copy of katie bar the door which is mike rogers uh History of Portland wrestling, and I—I I, I haven't read hardly any of it yet, but I can tell I'm going to like it because of the way the book is formatted. You have pre-1960, and then he goes through every year, talking about what happened. Every year after that, there's a chapter 1960, 1961, all the way through the closing of the promotion in 1991, and then they talk about, you know, the the upstart promotions, like the, the one Frank was just talking about after that. So I can see I'm going to enjoy this, um, but I did look up the part about Mike Popovich, and after all these years, I finally learned that he just didn't like the business and quit after two months. But then I learned after reading his – it was just a paragraph in the book that he went around bad-mouthing the business, and that's what caused the, the friction. Is there anything you can add to that, Frank?
1: Sure, and thanks for plugging the book. Um, appreciate that. I should let you know that there's uh, two other interview books from Mike doing Ring Around the Northwest for 30 years. Um, we put together the top interviews from – uh, those years in two volumes so far. There's a third volume about to come out end of August uh, with some some new interviews and uh, some more of the older interviews, um, and that's called Excitement in the Air. Uh, so if you want to look those up on Amazon or Katie Bar the Door, which is the history book. Uh, Mike's an interesting subject. Uh, yeah, not well liked in the wrestling circles at that time. Part of what came out was um, I guess we would just call he found religion and um, felt like Ah. he could not. In fact, there was an interview he did where he said he couldn't uh, be speaking truth out of one side of his mouth and and lying to the fans out of the other. And so he was going to um, a charismatic church out in Gresham, Oregon, a suburb of Portland. And um, that was really the, the end of it. He didn't like the business. Um, It's a tough business for a lot of people. Um, Oh, yeah. People get in and and think they're going to love it, and they quit. Um, But, yeah, Mike was was short-lived in Portland. They had high hopes for him, being an, an Oregon Duck and being a following. It's worked in Portland after that with Josh Wilcox, who played for the New Orleans Saints and was a star at the University of Oregon, and he got into wrestling and did okay for a little while.
0: Um, uh, former Tennessee Volunteers defensive coordinator.
1: There you go. Yes, he's he still he still loves that coaching stuff. Um,
0: <laughs> he's a coach at Cal. That's
1: a big job. It's yeah, it pays probably a little bit more than the local Portland scene at the moment.
0: <laughs> I I believe that.
1: Uh, but yeah, Mike is uh, Mike. Mike is one of the reasons why um, Don Owen did not like uh, local guys to get into the business. Um, there were a couple that did and, and made it, uh, but Don was always leery of people that would come in and start, and their family and friends would be here. Um, a lot of people, and then if they didn't like it, rumors would start. Of course, Billy Jack Haynes, you know, did really well, um, but Don was uh, did not like the local talent uh, coming in and working.
0: No, I I did read that in the book, and it cleared a lot up. And I I have have Josh Wilcox and Justin Wilcox mixed up. Sorry about that, listeners. Okay. Frank is like, what is this guy talking about? All right. We have a question from S.K. Lee. And this is the one part of the book that I've already read. And I am very glad that Mike and I share the same viewpoint on this because this gentleman – seems to get a lot of sympathy or uh, a lot of people from the Portland area kind of back this guy up. But I'll I'll read the question. S.K. Lee asks, what happened to that specific sports commissioner that kept going after Owen's territory and once joked to Len Denton that he tested positive for HIV? Fucking prick that guy was. We usually don't use that kind of language here on Stick to Wrestling, but that guy was a fucking prick. Frank Anderson I mean, just talk about becoming a, a wrestling czar out of nowhere and I want to say ruining wrestling for everybody in, in Oregon, but close to it. And I'm glad Mike shared my point of view because I've had a lot of people defend this guy over the years. And to me, Bruce Anderson was indefensible.
1: I would concur. And there's a good section in the book on the commission. Mike does a really good job of highlighting some of the challenges. So Bruce was, um, and there was a the whole commission, and most of the commission was boxing guys. They didn't understand wrestling. They didn't know the ins and outs. Most of them um, were still in the cave babe, uh, about wrestling. Um, Bruce was very, very difficult for the uh, for Don Owen to work with. Um, it got to the point where um, the grappler talks about one time he was being he was in Eugene had taped his fingers up heavily because he had broke his finger. And Bruce came in the locker room and saw it and wanted to know why he had so much tape on, because the rule was you couldn't have any tape, a certain amount of tape uh, past your wrist in the actual (laughs)
0: rules. I'd love to know the the reasoning for that.
1: So, um, and Bruce said he could fine him for wrestling and not reporting to the doctor that he had been hurt. The rules uh, in wrestling at that time were very real wrestling type rules to the type of garments that you could wear, the amount of tape that you could have on a number of things that were, would be traditional in a, I'll just say it a real wrestling, um, collegiate type wrestling, saying, type yeah. wrestling. um, so they had looked the other way on costumes because obviously, um, the outfits that the guys wore didn't adhere to the strict rules, but, Bruce was going to enforce that for whatever reason, Bruce in his cranky old age had decided to do. Um, And it wasn't until actually the results of the WB experience with me um, and the uh, threat of jail time. uh, When the show got canceled, the Portland wrestling show on WB got canceled uh, a person in, Tootie Smith, a state, center, a state legislature at the time, who loved wrestling. Uh, we got some promotion in the news about it, and it led to uh, Bill uh, changing professional wrestling to be called um, an entertainment wrestling. Vince had already done it, uh, but that was a big change, and that allowed the WWE uh, to actually come back into Portland um, because they had shut us down at, at the WB. Um, But Bruce was very difficult. He eventually resigned, and Jim Cassidy uh, took over. Everybody thought Jim was going to be better to work with. He was a friendlier gentleman. Um, And then he just got into some very bizarre instances uh, where he would enforce certain rules. He went to a a wrestling show and got involved where he got spanked. Um, And it was just a, (laughs) just a, a very... Bizarre thing. Eventually, um, a gentleman named Brad Darcy, who much younger man, came in, um, but ran into some financial irregularities. And there really is nobody enforcing the commission because there isn't a lot of wrestling in Portland. So the six percent ticket fee that you're supposed to send to the commission doesn't pay for anything. There's really not been any MMA action here for years, and so there is. In theory, a boxing and wrestling commission still, but ineffective
0: I mean, I remember when the w w f was getting really big in the late nineties and they just chose you know hey we're just we're just going to skip the state of Oregon well, number one you're taking something away from the fans. I remember Bruce Anderson doing an interview, I think it was with the Pro Wrestling Torch, saying, oh, well, you know, Vince just, uh, we're strict, and Vince is afraid of that. And I'm like, no, Vince is pragmatic. He doesn't need uh, 50 different states doing HIV tests to his wrestlers. He doesn't want to come to Oregon and have his wrestlers be tested for steroids for obvious purposes. But, you know, why does Bruce Anderson get to institute a Prove Your Innocence program like that?
1: Uh, Well, it was run under the auspices of the um, Oregon State Police, and I guess that frightened people off from ever challenging him. Bruce was, uh, Bruce could be very intimidating in person. Um, I remember when uh, there was a a group started um, where Ron Barber was a promoter in Portland and he marked out one night and jumped in the ring and hit Ed Moretti and attacked Buddy Rose because they were going to body slam one of the female wrestlers. Um, And Bruce was, of course, got involved and he was very difficult to work with and he would question everything, um, basically call you a liar. Um, So Bruce was, Bruce was very difficult. I know some people, Defend him. I know Ed Moretti defends him, and, um, you know, I love Ed, but Ed, um, my feelings of Bruce are completely different.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the, the purpose of state athletic commissions when it comes to wrestling, I understand that, look, you know, occasionally they will protect the public from an unscrupulous promoter who maybe will advertise names that, you know, he's never even spoken to. But my feeling has always been that the cost of a state athletic commission was just, you know, it was the whole thing was a negative and nothing amplified that. No one amplified that more than Bruce Anderson, in my opinion.
1: I 100% absolutely agree. But um, I believe Bruce has passed on a a number of years ago. but I, I couldn't tell you the date.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured. because I, He was an older gentleman anyway. Um, I remember he did uh, an interview. Again, I think this was the Pro Wrestling Torch where they asked him, you know, why do you have to... T- test wrestlers for HIV when there's no blood in Portland Wrestling, and Bruce is like, well, I just want these guys to, to think about the the decisions they make in life in general. And I was like, Bruce, that's not what the State Athletic Commission is supposed to oversee, but I'll, I'll move past Mr. Anderson for now. Uh, I have an interesting question from Matthew DeGrade, who says, what was the typical weekly schedule for shows, and about how much did the top guys make in the 80s in, 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 on the Portland?" circuit.
1: Okay. Um so typically um it was a Portland, Oregon is a is a fairly small state. Um and so that made it uh, a convenient place for wrestlers to come and work um and to learn. Uh so like Thursday was a Salem which is the state capital, uh third largest was at the time third largest city. Uh, but it's only forty five minutes from Portland. Fridays, were in Eugene, which is about 110 miles from Portland, so not a long drive. Saturday, back in Portland. Sunday through Wednesday uh, were usually spot shows, um, so you could go to Yakima or Longview, Washington, which is less than an hour away, uh, Astoria right on the coast, um, maybe 65, 70 minutes. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, they did go to Medford and Roseburg, farther down to the southern part of the state. Uh, but not so much uh, later when the territory started to go down. Um, Tuesday night specials were in Portland. They did those usually once a month or every six weeks. It's a big culmination of a feud, um, kind of your their pay-per-view at the time. Um, and then earlier, uh, 60s, 70s, uh, a lot of times Wednesdays were in Seattle. So you could bring somebody in or the N- NWA champion would come in. They'd work Wednesday in Seattle, Thursday Salem, Friday Eugene, Saturday in Portland, or uh, be a Tuesday night special. Uh, but it's a fairly easy drive, uh, freeways. Um, so people enjoyed that. That's why some guys homesteaded here, uh, like Tony Bourne and, and Roddy had a ho- has a ho- had a house here, uh, Buddy Rose. So it was easy to commute. As far as pay. So, and I just saw, I have a friend who recently acquired Buddy Rose's, uh, one of his paid books that he had. Um, And I believe he made in 1978 to 79, Buddy made about $11,000 just in Oregon, but he was working a lot for Shire down in San Francisco. Um, So, in today's money, But he made right around, uh, right around $120,000. He made $29,000 in that that time's money, which would be about $120,000 today. But that would be at the very top end for guys. Um, Other than that, the 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 crews were always small. You know, 12 to maybe 15 at the most that were rotating in and out, and uh, so it would not be unusual for those guys, the, the preliminary type guys um, to make significantly less than that, but it was an easy drive. Um, and things at that time were fairly inexpensive. There were no 5 and $6 gallon gas. Um, so that's about what the top guy Rose would have been making in today's money it would have been about 120000
0: that's what I've always heard about Portland. That it wasn't quite the grind that working, let's say, the WWF or you know Georgia or uh, Mid Atlantic was. But I mean, the, the money was bigger out there, but it wasn't the grind that you know the WWF would be back in the seventies or eighties.
1: Right, and then Buddy's pay would have gone down the next year um, after the after he pulled the deal with Roy Shire in seventy nine. Um, over his U.S. title, where he had been suspended by the commission and then was cleared, and, and Shire wouldn't let him wrestle. And uh, Shire had sent uh, Ron Starr and Mantell out to fight for the championship, which had been held up. And after the first fall, Buddy went out um, to the crowd. Shire tried to chase him down, but Buddy got on the mic and basically told the crowd the, the truth about wrestling. And why some of the guys weren't there and that Shire had been lying to him about issues. And um, so that was right towards the end of Shire. But that was the end of the Shire-Portland deal that he had with Don. And so uh, Buddy wasn't making those shots down there. So his pay would have fallen a, a fair amount.
0: Uh, that that only makes sense. Now, I'm looking for the person who asked, why didn't uh, Don Owen uh, try running San Francisco after Shire's closed shop? Now... I learned this recently. I was like, okay, is that a short distance? No, it is nine hours driving uh, between Portland and San Francisco. And I really didn't see a town south of Portland that they ran that really would have cut down on that travel time. Now, it's wrestlers. They can turn nine hours into six hours. But was that ever discussed that, you know, maybe running San Francisco after Shires died?
1: Um, Not today. Not that I know of, you know, the ter- Shire's territory had pretty much was shutting down anyway, and the AWA was looking to, to come in. Uh, Don did take his TV tapes and send them down to um, a station down that way. So he got his show uh, on the air down there. But as far as guys going down, um, there there just wasn't. The population bases in towns um, on the past Salem or past Eugene, really, uh, that would have made it beneficial for them to go down to San Francisco, which was a dying territory anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I looked that, that up today. There there just doesn't seem to be that town or that city in between Portland and San Francisco that, that would have made it worth it. And as you stated, you know, soon after Shire's closed shop, the AWA found themselves in San Francisco. So I wouldn't want to go – if I was Portland, I, w- I wouldn't want to go head-to-head with Vern, basically.
1: And you look at the – back to the population, you look um, – I mean, nowadays you have Sacramento, which is uh, – a very large, nice, nice city, uh, but at that time Sacramento was just a, a, a small city, so it would not have worked.
0: Okay, yeah, I'd forgotten about Sacramento. Now, someone had asked um, about the Vancouver, about Portland, the Portland territory running in Vancouver. Um, and I remember a show, I was watching Portland Wrestling one day and they were, were like, okay, we're going to bring good wrestling back to Portland. They, Por, uh, not Portland, Vancouver. Vancouver had been uh, run poorly and they were saying this on TV for a long time and now you're going to have good wrestling. Can you tell me a little bit about what went into that? I mean, they really bad mouthed, I'm assuming they were talking about Tomco.
1: Um, so uh, Portland also went by big time wrestling up, uh, in the Seattle market. <clears throat> so they had, they had their show tape so that they could be called a big time wrestling up in Seattle. Um, so that would, be, would have been all-star wrestling. Um, and it started out well, um, uh, Kovacs, um, and Gene Kaninsky and Don Owen, uh, formed a, an alliance uh, called the Northwest wrestling promotion, uh, back in about 1968, uh, Ran through 1977. Um, and then Konitsky sold his shares. Oh, no, excuse me. Uh, Topko so- sold his shares. Um, Kovac, excuse me. Kovac's three people here. Kovac sold his shares uh, to Topko, And um, that was in 77. And it ran through about 89. Uh, Konitsky saw the writing on the wall in 83 because it was uh, a bad production. Um, Topko was pushing himself all the time and the crowds were down um it is interesting that's where uh, mario Ronaldo got his start in broadcasting uh, and in wrestling was was at all-star wrestling uh so they did bad mouth it some um because at that time um after 83 it was such a bad promotion don didn't really want to be associated with it um they had hoped to give their play their guys a place to increase their pay and increase their, um, exposure, but it's still run. It's run by a a different gentleman. Now it's a smaller promotion, but all-star wrestling is actually still in existence. Michelle star or gentleman who run, who wrestled under the name Michelle star, uh, runs all-star wrestling.
0: Okay, and by the way, it was Jamie Ward who asked the Vancouver question. Um, Here's a question I have, or or, or an observation I have. I used to get uh, tapes of Portland wrestling starting in 1987, and it took, I would say, about six or seven months for me to even know the announcer's name. It was Frank Bonema. And he was so laid back and so about not making it about himself that I didn't even know the guy's name. I'm, I, I was like trying to figure it out. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on Frank as an, an announcer?
1: So Frank was um, a, a gentleman who worked at the station KPTV um, and he did daytime television hosting and they then started doing Portland Wrestling when Portland Wrestling moved from the coin Channel Six to KPTV 12, and he was the um, chosen to be the announcer. Very deadpan. Um, he is the one that came up with um, what we say is the, the title of the book. Um, very deadpan until things got out of hand, and that's how you kind of knew was because he kind of got excited. Um, and but otherwise, that was he saw his role as just being saying what's kind of happening, uh, pushing the towns. He pushed the towns all the time, um, for tickets. Uh, but Don was, I mean, uh, Frank, uh, was beloved in Portland, uh, an icon. And when he passed away and, uh, from a heart attack at a, at a really young age, um, then Don Cos uh, took over and he had been actually in sales at, uh, KPTV, never been in wrestling, but he took over. Uh, Dutch Savage helped out some, and Stan Stasiak at the end of his career came in and helped. Now, when Don. did
0: this transition take place? Like, when did uh, when did when did um, th- uh, not Don Koss the other guy? When did he pass away? Frank Bonima. Frank Bonima. Thank you. Uh,
1: Frank Bonima.
0: Because I, I he... noticed Koss came in. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. no you please. I I, I I want you to go ahead.
1: Uh, let's see. Frank took over in 1966. Um, I'm trying to think of when exactly.
0: I think maybe 82. Uh,
1: um yes, it was 1982. He suffered a heart attack. Uh, okay. he was only 49 years old. Uh, he was in great, I mean, he, he looked to be in great physical shape. Um, a heavy smoker as were a lot of people back at that time. Um, yep. He was yeah very dead pen um, but he had, he had been there for 15 years and it was a complete shock because he, he had not had any pre-existing conditions. Okay.
0: And then Don Koss took over for him. And I like Don Koss as, as well. Um, he was the same way. Like, you know, you're like, okay, is this man ever going to identify himself? And I remember listening to Don Koss call the matches. And it was near the end of, of Stan Stasiak's career. And Don Koss, he's on the mic, you know, calling a wrestling match, saying, and, you know, with Stan Stasiak's career winding down. He's going to need another job, and if you need a a salesman or a spokesman, get in contact with us because Stan's our guy. And I just loved it. I loved the the campiness of it. Like This is what pro wrestling was to me.
1: Yeah, Don um, was was a lot more outgoing than Frank uh, in his interviewing. Um, He laughed a a lot more uh, on the presentation, uh, making jokes at times. Uh, where Frank really did not. uh, I know I've worked with Don. Uh, He came in and actually did some work with me at Portland Wrestling. Um, And uh, very nice man, still lives here in uh, the Woodburn area, uh, owns a Hispanic radio station. Um, So Don knows, he he knows all these guys and he knew how to, uh, he knew how to ask the right questions um, in the interview. Um, One of the things that, uh, I learned from him and from Roddy when I started um, was never let the wrestlers take the microphone. And I see that today. And uh, Tony, I know Tony Schiavone gets ripped on Twitter for it all the time, but because they take the microphone. That's one of the things Roddy said was never let the announcer or the uh, microphone go out of your hand. And I only remember one time when um, Frank really let that go. And that was when. Um, uh, sawyer bladed so badly and was bleeding profusely up in the crow's nest which was the interview area and frank clearly knew to not be anywhere near that amount of blood um but yeah don's a a, a great guy learned the business on the fly he had absolutely um no a couple of days notice that he was going to go on the air and that's a tough thing to do um i know it appears to be easy to do announcing, but when you have your um, the producer talking in your ear, or you've got someone from the locker room talking in your ear, um, and if there's two of you, you might have your co-announcer. You're trying to listen to them, see what's happening on the monitor in front of you. Announcing can be uh, of wrestling can be tricky, uh, and Don pulled it off flawlessly.
0: It, it really, I, I. I... Did it very briefly once, and and I mean to say that the bullets are flying is an understatement. Speaking of Brett Sawyer, Jesus Salas Rodriguez asked, "Is Brett Sawyer's blade job the worst in wrestling history?" He's like, "I hope they threw the microphone away." <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen that footage. He is covered head to toe in blood. It's the worst I've ever seen on television. I thought uh, Chris Jericho's blade job at the Smoky Mountain Night of Champions. was the worst thing I've ever seen, but on TV, Bretz was the worst. Who was he wrestling that night? Was it Flair?
1: No, it was um, he was in a tag match uh, with Steve Pardee as his partner. They were the tag team champions and they were going against uh, Rip Oliver and the Assassin, who was also the Destroyer and also Top Gun in Portland, Fidel Sierra, Dave Sierra. Um, And that was was back in 82 Um, and it was from a headbutt from the Assassin um, uh, and Sawyer decided to blade heavily. Um, and so they stopped the match on account of blood, which was an, a rule that they had in Portland wrestling, not as a commission rule, but a Portland wrestling rule, um, because it was too much of a danger to the wrestler because Portland wrestlers bled frequently anyway. Um, because you know, the old saying red means green, um, yep so that wasn't that wasn't an issue but the amount of blood that he had was clearly an issue um so they awarded the titles uh to oliver and the assassin and then sawyer comes up to the crow's nest and um produces one of the most memorable for a lot of reasons interviews uh in the history of portland wrestling um he was you know he exaggerates and says he's Losing two pints of blood every minute or one pint of every <laughs> two minutes. Um, Dr. Brett. Yeah, but he was he was bleeding significantly. Um, so, you know, those things happen if you cut yourself wrong. Um, I had a gentleman in, when we were doing Portland Wrestling, uh, grappler loaded the boot, the orthopedic boot, of course, and uh, kicked him in the head. Uh, Scotty Mack pretty boy, baby face, uh, supposed to go down, get some color, and he hadn't done it on television, and he panicked, and um, he cut himself, uh, he tried to cut himself, it didn't bleed much, so instead of going across the forehead, he went up and down, and he went way deep, and I knew, ah. I knew it was going to be an issue when Scotty raised up from the mat, and the blood was actually squirting, Oh, as far as his hand would reach out. Um, Match was supposed to go 11 minutes. Um, After about two, I gave the signal to go home. And uh, that was pretty much like that. He was covered uh, like that, that amount of blood. And the ring was covered in that amount of blood. So those things happen. Um, And why Brett decided to bleed like that, I don't know. Um, But it made for a good feud coming up. And his brother came back in. And um, off they went with another story.
0: I mean, I would look at Brett Sawyer, and, you know, I I didn't see it at the time. I saw it after the fact in Portland in 1982. And I'm like, okay, this guy has the potential to be not a superstar, but a big-time wrestler. And he got the big push in Georgia in 1983, early 84, and that was kind of it for him, which disappointed me. I thought when he was in Portland, he showed a ton of potential.
1: Yeah, he was given the um, – Portland rarely, in fact, one of the first times they did, they vacated the title, and uh, the heavyweight title, and there was a battle royal to determine the new champion, which just was not something Portland ever did. And um, so all the stars were in the battle royal, unlike the AEW battle royal last week, but I won't go into that. Um, okay. And uh, Brett came out on top, and it was a complete surprise, and it was one of those where – uh, it shows that anybody can, if you're in wrestling as, a, as the real sport, anybody can win. And um, that's the point of not giving it to Rose or any of the other participants at that time. Um, Brett Sawyer came out. He was a face. He won the battle royal. And it got him elevated, which is the point in wrestling
0: exactly and, and portland did a really good job with that you know turning him from like a a portland mid- carter into a legitimate star that people got behind they did they did a great job with him
1: and you know in portland it was real. there was a formula uh you would co- usually come in um you'd win a preliminary match you might win two or three preliminary matches in the first couple of weeks um, and then you'd get maybe a if they, they did battle royals regularly, that you might win the battle royal and then get elevated to um a, a main event match. That was pretty much standard formula. There was really only two I think there's only really two times I remember when that didn't happen. One was uh Bull Ramos being introduced and in, in Storyline breaking Lonnie Main's arm so he could go somewhere else. Uh, and Bull was in the main event from that night on. And then um uh, Paul Pershman, Buddy Rose, his introduction, uh, he came in and was immediately teamed with um, Jesse Ventura, who had been teaming with Bolt Ramos, and uh, Buddy was in the main events from then on. But other than that, there was a formula. that You came in, you were introduced, you the fans saw you, got to know you, and, um, and that worked for Brett.
0: Alright, now I have I have one complaint about Portland Wrestling, and I started watching wrestling when I was 10 years old, and I really believe that I would have picked up on this when I was 10 or 11 years old. Towards the end of the television program, they would have someone get on the mic and say, four minutes remaining, four minutes, and they were obviously telling the wrestlers to go home, and like I said, I think I would have picked up on that. Mike, I, I, Frank, do you have any thoughts on
1: that? Um, so, if you, when you go through the book, you'll be amazed at how many times uh, Portland Wrestling used draws. I mean, there were, you'll find some cards where if there were six matches, four of them sometimes were draws. Uh, oh, wow. Just really unusual. Again, a very small territory with a limited number of wrestlers. So, wins and losses mattered, and, and draws were ways to continue storylines. Uh, there was also uh, disqualifications were frequent. Um, in Portland, um, which is not some, again, not something that you see today um, is draws and disqualifications, but really helps the storyline. Portland also, uh, so you usually had a couple of preliminaries, and then you had a semi-main and a main event. You were always hoping to get the main event on television, um, but usually got the semi-main, and it was always to a time limit. Uh, with, they would say two out of three. Always two out of three falls was big in Portland uh, to a TV time limit. And so, you know, it was it it was like for a while live TV. So you had to end on on time. They would start early by calling out the cues, you know, five minutes gone, 10 minutes gone. Uh, But yeah, towards the end, you would know that they were either going to go Broadway or the finish was coming.
0: Yeah, I thought they gave that away a little bit. Now, Portland, I have seen Portland um, from the the late 70s, early to mid-80s, and I thought it was really good. Then, in my opinion, around 1985, 1986, it really started to slow down. And then in 89, they brought in Lynn Denton as the booker. And Denton kind of immediately, like no transition time, Turn Portland into almost I was gonna say almost a, a Memphis type promotion like with you know mm-hmm. tons of angles, but it was almost like Memphis on speed. I mean it was cr- even crazier than Memphis as a fan watching as someone who you know watched closely like how did that set with you
1: it was it was a fairly noticeable um, a Dents is a great guy uh, when I was doing wrestling, Portland wrestling uh, we would get together. Um, and create the shows every week at my house. Um, He lives in uh, Texas now. He's doing pretty well. Uh, But he came in and and immediately wanted to do Memphis-type storylines, and not just uh, in the main events. It would be pretty much up and down the card. You know, he had started, he had been in the business about 10 years at that time. He had seen, he had been with uh, Tony Anthony uh, as the Grapplers with Jim Cornette as a manager, then they were, became the dirty white boys with, uh, Jimmy Hart. Uh, so he knew all of what made Memphis and those areas, uh, tick and Portland wasn't doing any of that. Um, and I helped that, uh, Piper was around and voicing his, um, opinions. Piper is a genius, uh, about wrestling angles. And so. they they created things. The commission had put in strictly the uh, no blood policy. And so that made things difficult. They came up with the, if they brought in John Nord, which is um, the first time he really became the barbarian here in Portland. Um, So you had Piper's fingerprints. uh, There were things changed. They were doing some kind of recaps. Portland had been a it was a, a stationary two-television shot from the crow's nest. Cameras were six, seven feet apart from each other, focused on the ring, uh, so no nothing in ring. But they up their production values just a little bit, um, and you could see see a difference. Um, Piper came in; he he did some new things. Uh, um, Art Bar, um, Sandy Bar, one of Sandy Bar's son and sons in wrestling. Um, you know, Jimmy Jack Funk, uh, Jesse Barr. Um, and then his other son, J.R. Barr wrestled towards the end of the promotion just a little bit. Um, he took Art Barr from just a skinny preliminary guy, just starting in the business, uh, to being Beetlejuice transformed him right there in the internet or on the interview in the crow's nest and made him a star. Of course, Art went on to be a, a terrific wrestler, um, as a love machine in Mexico. Um, but, yeah, things changed dramatically at that time. The Things did get stale for a little while, um, and they had to bring in some new guys. Mike Golden came in, um, and things picked up a little bit. But fans were seeing WWF on television. They were seeing uh, strong production values, and the and Portland also made some errors um, in that they were doing a lot of extravaganzas, bringing in uh, the stars, uh, the coal offs and the dusty roads for big events. Um, and the Portland guys would be in the preliminaries. And so you then saw the Portland guys as lesser than the stars that you had seen on television. And that hurt Portland as well.
0: That is a mistake. You know, that is a mistake that a lot of promotions made. And it sounds good, like okay, come out and see Dusty Rhodes and introduce yourselves to the Portland guys. But in reality, it just trained the fans. Hey, you know, don't come out for Portland wrestling. Wait until Dusty and or the Road Warriors and or Flair come out here.
1: Yeah. So Portland in the you know sixties through early eighties um, sellouts at the Portland Sports Arena. Uh, that they moved to Don had bought a bowling alley and converted it. Um, and uh, it, it didn't seat a ton of people, a couple thousand, uh, but there was a lot of sellouts and turnaway crowds. And uh, towards the end, uh, people could see enough wrestling on television um, and see, I won't say better, but it appeared to be better presentation, present presentated wrestling. Um, and so, that's a mistake that they made
0: yeah I mean you know a lot of promoters thought that their fans didn't watch the wrestling on the other channels of course they did I, I could have told you that at any point in my life and you're right you know you have the WWF and at the time WCW who were just you know really ahead of Portland in terms of production value and in terms of star recognition and I mean that's just going to hurt the local promotion
1: Yeah, a a two-camera shoot versus um, a WCW or WWF production, it's not even close.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, I would watch Portland uh, from the early 80s, and it felt like I was watching something from the early 70s, (laughs) and that's a knock. It was a good promotion, just the the production values just weren't there.
1: Right. There was no television camera, uh, no television lights uh, surrounding the ring, so the ring had a different appearance. Um, So it it was a smaller time promotion.
0: All right. I have a question from Paul Skyvers. How over was Shag Thomas in the 60s in Portland?
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, Shag Thomas. Um, Crazy over. Um, So um, Shag... Started, he he wasn't very tall. The Shag was, in his obituary, it says he was 5'7". And he weighed, when he he played college ball at Ohio State uh, in 1948 to 50, something like that, he was about 205 pounds. So he wasn't very big. Uh, By the time he was in Portland at the end, he was significantly heavier than uh, 205 pounds. Uh, But he started as a wrestler, was very successful. in the 60s, he uh, held the, the tag team titles with guys like Rene Goulet, um, Tony Bourne, Pepper Martin. Uh, he was very successful tagging with Luther Lindsay, who was here uh, frequently. Um, and you know what a, terim- a tremendous wrestler uh, Luther was. Um, he was a two-time singles champion, uh, so his, he wasn't a great wrestler. Uh, but as a tag wrestler, he could get he could get over. Um, now this is Luther Lindsay we're talking about. Yeah, Lu- no, uh, Shag. Okay, Shag was the two time okay. champion. Luther could Luther could go with anybody. He was a great wrestler. That's what I've heard. Um, so uh, he passed away in like 1982 at about 57 years old. But he had lived in Portland for a while. Held a, oh, had a restaurant here, a tavern that people would frequent. He would work out or he had a, a shirt t-shirt uh, as when he became a referee uh, that said La which was a local uh, gym where wrestlers went and worked out. And the deal was, yeah, he would just always just be the ref, just be the ref and tell the heels not to do stuff and not to do stuff until finally the heel would explode and the heel would rip that t-shirt. And then that was of course was fines and suspensions, according to Frank Bonoma. And, um, uh, they would maybe have uh, Shag do a tag with somebody against the the heel. Uh, but Shag was very popular in Portland, um, and he was a really good referee. And I, I, if you go back and look at tapes, uh, Sandy Barr, when he became a referee, they both did the same thing. You, you barely noticed him until it was time. Um, whereas today, referees, I think, are kind of taught to be more – Animated, Um, they help sell the moves or bounce or move their hands. Um, You will see Shag and Sandy just back in the corner and letting the wrestlers be the match until the time came if they were to be involved or to count the pin. And Shag was was great at that, but Shag was very much over. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Shag, Luther Lindsey, and boy, I wouldn't say it was a guy named Dory Dixon. Uh all three were uh, black wrestlers in Portland, 1962, at the same time, which was very, very unusual for a lot of territories and in Portland never happened. And Dixon was only here for about a month uh, before he moved on. Um, but Shag stayed around forever and Luther came and went on a regular basis.
0: Now, Luther Lindsay passed away in a car accident, I want to say early 70s, late 60s, but I, I've never actually seen him wrestle, but I've heard great things about him. I've seen photos of him. Uh, I mean, he looked like a, a potential superstar to me at least.
1: Shag? Uh, no, Luther, oh, Lindsay. Luther Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. Luther, uh, Luther was one of those guys that could shoot, and so promoters often put him in matches if they're – was going to be trouble. Um, He was a phenomenal wrestler. Luthes speaks very highly of um, Lindsay. Uh, He was a a tremendous, tremendous wrestler.
0: All right. Yeah, I have a question for Mark Matsuo. Who is on your Mount Rushmore of Portland wrestlers? Frank, what do you think?
1: Well, you just have to look at the book cover and that's, (laughs) that's what I thought. That's Rose Piper. Um, um Tony Bourne and Lonnie May, Um and Mike and I came to an agreement pretty easy on that one. Um I know I know there are a couple others that would be close. I know uh Dave Meltzer has said that uh, those are the four, uh, but Bull Ramos and Dutch Savage and Jimmy Snooker could be close, along with Kurt Poppenheim, who was very successful with a very long run here in the early sixties. And he's covered in the book uh, for a lawsuit that he had against the state of Oregon for denying him a promoter's license. Um, But those are the four guys, you know, Tony Bourne, not not big in stature. uh, But what made him great was he was very, very believable. He was probably the shortest one of the shortest guys in Portland, Um, but he held the tag titles 11 times with Lonnie Maine himself. He had uh, nine singles championships. Um, and he held the title with a number of tag titles with a number of other guys. Um, so he was really instrumental in the early feuds uh, in the 60s or late mid 60s uh, team because he teamed with Lottie Maine. And then they eventually broke up a couple of times. Um, but Tony Bourne was a uh, left handed solar plexus punch was his was one of his big moves, uh, rubbing the beard in the eyes, the old school type tricks. Um, and Tony was just, uh, he came across as a bully on television, super nice guy, but came across as a a, a bully on television, which is what worked with Lonnie Main, who's also one of the uh, Mount Rushmore guys. Um, Lonnie was the big kid who Tony would take under his wings and bully him around um, until eventually they'd break up and then they'd get back together. But uh, Lonnie was instrumental, one of the most recognizable people in portland wrestling and and you know he was very successful back east and in uh california he had 11 singles titles himself um which is the second most Uh, rip oliver actually won it 12 times but a bunch of those were towards the end of the promotion uh but lonnie was instrumental um he came in 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 november of 66 i think um Then you had Buddy Rose come in. Uh, I mentioned what his push started happening right away. He came in in August of 76. He won the singles championship 10 times, but he didn't win it for almost three years of him being in Portland, which shows that you don't have to win the title to be a star. And that's a lesson a lot of promotions can learn. The the belt can help elevate somebody, but certain people don't need the belt to be elevated. Rose was one of those for the first three years. He won the tag titles a number of times, of course, with Ed Wiskowski, um, who was a great partner for him. Uh, he was him and the next guy, of course, which is Piper, who came in in October of 78. Um, iconic. Uh, there are a few in Portland is one of the top three. Most A lot of people uh, – who watched wrestling in this, uh, seven late seventies, early eighties, mid eighties would rate that as the number one feud in Portland history. Um, they drew incredible money together, incredible crowds. Um, and Piper was magic on the stick and he was, um, a genius in the ring. When I did wrestling and, and we used Piper, um, he would come up with some tremendous ideas for guys. He would look at what, uh, Grappler and I had come up with and he would go, okay, why don't we change this and go with this? And here's why. And it was like, yeah, that makes a whole much more sense than what Grappler and I came up with. Uh, so those are the four, uh, top guys. I think most people, nobody would, I think argue with Piper and Rose, uh, people who aren't um, old enough to remember, uh, the sixties. Um, in early seventies wouldn't necessarily remember Maine and Bourne, Uh, but those guys were clearly, uh, for me, the Mount Rushmore, I mean, Savage, Dutch Savage Savage. and his feuds with bull Ramos, uh, drew tremendous money. They feuded for four years, easy, five years, coal miners, glove, Indian strap matches, combination matches, always brutal, always violent. Um, Uh, And Snuka, who had great success here in Portland, Uh, Cowboy Frankie Lane brought him in, and uh, instantly he was a success. That's my Mount Mount Rushmore.
0: All right. My Mount Rushmore... Is I mean clearly Buddy Rose I mean dominant force in Portland over a long term, Moon Dog Maine and Tony Bourne are next. Uh, I mean they dominated in the '60s. My last guy, uh, my last guy off would have been Mad Dog Vachon because he was a big deal in Portland in the '60s. But my number four spot would have gone to someone who I don't think I don't, th- I don't think his name has come up yet. And the reason I have him on instead of instead of Roddy Piper, Roddy was only there for two years, basically. Matt Bourne was a big star in Portland for a long time, and and he homesteaded there, and that that's why I would have hit Matt on.
1: Ah, so yeah, Matt was so Matt debuted um, in '78. He'd obviously been around the business, you know, since his dad was uh, was here. Um, was very talented. Also did a, was a uh, a great trainer of a number of wrestlers. Um, he was very successful at, at training, very uh, intense in his training. Yeah, Matt had some great um, runs here. He had great runs elsewhere. Uh, he had a few demons that that uh, set him back a bit in places. Um, but yeah, then, of course, the issue where um, Buddy Rose married uh, Matt's sister, And um In real life in real life for a very short while. Um and then things didn't work out is what we will leave it at. Um and there was uh the police were involved. Um and so uh there was fear that Matt and Buddy would have uh, problems in the ring and they actually it's wrestling, they turned it into an angle, but it wasn't in real life wasn't an angle. Um, yeah, it was it was a bad situation. They turned it into an angle and worked it in the ring.
0: I mean, you would think, you know, if I'm Buddy Rose, I'm thinking maybe marry someone else other than <laughs> Matt Bourne's sister. I don't know. Quick trivia, though, if if not for Matt Bourne, um, having some legal issues in Georgia, there may never have been the Road Warriors.
1: Absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, Matt was, was slated right there in a, a, a main spot, and um, and we have Hawk and Animal.
0: Yep, uh, Matt Bourne and Arn Anderson were going to win a fictitious champ, uh, tournament for the Georgia Tag Team, or then the National Tag Team Championships, and Matt got into some legal trouble in Ohio that led to his dismissal, leading to only... Anderson kind of pushing a panic button that worked and bringing in these two very green guys named the Road Warriors so that that had a big lasting impact on the wrestling business for sure you know this Frank has been such a great conversation there's so much more stuff I want to ask you but we're beginning to run out of time but I just want to first of all I want to thank you for all three books they I haven't had a chance to read all of them but I got Katie Barr the door yesterday and I started going through it i know i'm gonna i know i'm gonna like this book as i said earlier because of the way it's formatted i mean can you tell us a, a little bit more about the three books you've already released the one that's coming out and where the listeners of stick to wrestling can
1: obtain them well you can obtain any of the three books um on amazon but i would direct you to eat sleep wrestle our publisher john cosper a great friend of wrestling a terrific gentleman um, and you can buy books through him, and I would urge people to do that to support uh, Eat Sleep Wrestle and John, and in, in his uh, publishing. Um, so, uh, Katie, bar the door. So we're going to Eat Eat com is where you want people to get the books. Yes, absolutely. If they if they right. if they can't find it, Amazon, but Amazon has enough money. Um, uh, that's that's what I think. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, so. That's Katie Bar the Door, History of Portland Wrestling, which is the results the history of Portland, pretty in-depth uh, coverage of events. And then the other ones are Excitement in the Air, Voices of Northwest Wrestling, Volumes 1 and 2, uh, which are available. Some great interviews. You'll find interviews with Dutch Savage, John Dardine, which is hard to read because it's so salty. He does not like anybody in the world. Um, but you'll find younger guys, um, Brian Danielson wrestled in the Northwest. So it's not just Portland. It's the the Northwest, uh, ECCW open Canada as well. So we have an interview with Brian Danielson, uh, when he is just starting out and he thinks he's going to go home and go to community college and he doesn't know what wrestling's going to hold for him. Uh, David Richards is in there kind of much the same thing. He had, he had won a couple tournaments. Um, but he didn't know what was happening for him. And so to see guys, Kyle O'Reilly, and to see where they are today, and they had no clue where wrestling was going to take them. If you have one second, I'll tell you a quick Brian Danielson story. story. Uh, Uh, Definitely. So one at WB Portland Wrestling was probably his first televised wrestling match. And we had brought him in as the American Dragon uh, to team with uh, another gentleman against Dr. Luther and the Black Dragon, Brett Como. Uh, Luther was uh, much younger than he is now and could really, really go. He was great. But we'd go to our, do our interviews and in post, and so Brian's never done interviews. And I would stand there with the mic. i go, okay, this is what I'm going to say to you. It's easy. I'm just saying about this match next week and you talk. And it took 11 tries to do our first interview because um, he had never done them. He didn't know what to say or how to say it. And you look at him today, and it's phenomenal. So, guys, if you're just starting out, practice your interviews. You never know when you're going to get a break.
0: Exactly. Um, I mean, one quick last thing. I mean, I remember like 20 years ago hearing an audio interview uh, from the internet somewhere with Don Jardine. (laughs) He was something special, man. (laughs) I thought that nothing could take me aback the way he did. But, yeah, I was taken aback. He's an interesting guy. He he
1: is successful in wrestling, man. He as a Avustin Jardine, or as a spoiler, him and teaming up with Dutch Savage, uh, they didn't like each other. Uh, but you'll re- read Mad Dog Vachon uh, interviews. You talk about him. Uh, just a number of stars from the past, guys that you maybe didn't know were in the Northwest. Um, yeah, Ivan Koloff, uh, and so some who wrestled as Red Mcnulty around here. Um, so you'll find some great things and uh, check out the books. They're a great read.
0: Frank, this has been a fun hour. I could do this all day, but we only have about an hour. I want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad I finally got to talk to you, uh, speak with you. And I want to publicly thank Mike Rogers for these books. They're fantastic.
1: Awesome. Mike's a great historian. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of them. Matt Farmer, um, Jim Valley, of course, and Mike Rogers, guys, that uh, keep memories alive. It's important to have a good history lesson and to see where Portland has been and where wrestling has come from. So appreciate having me on today.
0: No problem. Matt Farmer's another guy I've known on the internet for like 20 years, and I should have him on the show at some point. So once again, I want to thank Frank Colberton for taking the time to be on Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me uh, this platform to talk about wrestling. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, who does such a great job week in, week out, not only producing the show, but getting the show recorded, which sometimes can be its own challenge. And I want to thank everyone for listening. This has been a production of The Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Go, Vols, win the World Series. Go, Celtics, win that championship. This concludes our podcast day.